Hey everybody, welcome to the Good Lion Podcast. This is Aaron and I am really excited about this episode uh, that I'm about to present to you. This is a conversation uh, with Professor Gary Brashears that just goes so deep and wide and he put up with my questions so well. And uh, you know, Gary, to so many of us here at CGN and Good Lion, is such a treasure and a gift to just our community and the theological and Christian community as a whole. We love him. And I just, before we play this episode, I just want to make you aware in in case you don't know, um, Gary is actually currently battling two different kinds of cancer, both cancer of the skin and cancer of the bladder, which is something that I did not have any idea of actually when we recorded this weeks ago. Um, But he has publicly been uh, sharing about this and sharing about his journey. And so many of us are praying for him now and coming alongside to just intercede and ask that God would heal him and, and that God would be there for him and his family in what is a very difficult time. It's amazing to see his heart and his character through this. He, he just he just <laughs> exudes so much hope and so much faith, and he continues to serve the Lord even through his trials. And so if you would like to keep up with Gary's cancer journey and pray for him, you can go to his website, brashears.net. That's B R E. S H E A R S dot net. Uh, and he has been posting uh, regular updates on there. So just, you know, enjoy the episode, but please join with us in praying for Gary and for his family. Thank you so much and uh, enjoy this episode of the Good Lion Podcast. Hey, everybody, welcome to the Good Lion Podcast. I'm Aaron Salvato, and I'm here with the one, the only, the legendary Gary Brashears. Gary, how's it going? Well, until you call me legendary, that sounds like I've already died. <laughs> That's going good. <laughs> no, we got we have the the very much alive Gary Brashears with us today. Woo-hoo. Legendary but alive. How's that? I'll take anything I can get. And I enjoy how talking to you, Aaron. These are always fun. Oh, thanks, man. We we enjoy talking to you. Seriously, it's it's such a gift to be able to chat with you, man. This is actually your third time on the show. Our first guest, very first guest to ever show up on the show three times. I know Brian was very bummed that he couldn't make it for this episode. The two of us love having you on the show because for us, it's like it's like getting a free seminary class. It's like having our own personal seminary teacher here with us for free. Wait, you're not paying for this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Your, your, your check will be in the mail soon. <laughs> Gary, why, why don't I intro you? For those of you guys who are not familiar with Gary, Gary Brashears has been a professor of theology at Western Seminary since 1980. He teaches at many colleges and seminaries around the world. He is a pastor to pastors. He is an elder and a member of the preaching team at Grace Community Church in Oregon, as well as a part of the Board of the Bible Project. That's all true. Yep. All right. Good. Good. Glad we got it. And I'm a very happy grandfather. You oh. should add that in, too. Awesome. Awesome. A mixture of bio and non-bio grandkids. Oh, anyway. So good. So good. <laughs> you know, I, I'm actually about to 
to have my first child, a son. Yay! <laughs> I'm super, super excited about it. My, my wife is due at the time of this recording in about three weeks. Cool. But at the time that this comes out, the baby will be <laughs> born. So uh, yeah, the time is time is a weird thing. Gary, can you give me some fatherly advice since I'm about to become a father? Uh, enjoy big time because you never can push replay. Mm, wow. I. Uh, and then just the basic idea, of course, love and structure, those two together are 80% of parenting is just love and structure. Love that. Love um, that. And there are details from there. But those love and structure, that basis is, anyway, there's good books on parenting. We use, we were doing uh, parenting with love and logic before the book existed. Hmm. And I think that's a good way to do things. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for that. This is great, man. Free, free seminary, free parenting, <laughs> parenting advice. I love it, man. I love there you it. Go. Uh, so, Gary, are you ready to have a conversation about penal substitutionary atonement? Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> Getting some clarification on some of the brouhaha's going on in the Twitter sphere would right. be really good. Yes. Yes. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the debate around the theology of penal substitutionary atonement. And for the sake of time, we're just going to refer to it by its acronym PSA for the rest of the episode. So to start out, I was thinking it would be great, Gary, if you could help us understand the theology of PSA. I think there might be some people listening where they're they're like, what what even is that? So can you break it down for us? What is the theology? Go step by step and help help us understand what PSA means. I well, piece at a time. Atonement means there has to be some sort of work by God to enable those of us who have been driven out of the garden, Genesis chapter three, to get back to the tree of life. Hmm. And exactly what it takes on God's side to accomplish that atonement, redemption. That's the first statement. For a lot of people, God didn't have to do anything. We're already in because he's a kind and loving God, mm. and that is not correct. Something has to be done. Then the next step is, what's the nature of that provision? And uh, my view is that he does a whole bunch of different things. He conquers, crushes the serpent. Mm. He cleanses and redeems the creation. But substitution, which is the next word up, is that somehow there is a penalty associated with our betrayal of his relationship and our ongoing sin. Hmm. And that penalty is in any justice system, there is a penalty associated with violation of the honor code or the law code or whatever it is. Hmm. And so the key of substitution is there's a substitute who takes our penalty in our place. Hmm. And that leads us into the third idea is the penal, that is that there actually is a penalty uh, associated with our betrayal, with our uh, law breaking, all those different things. Right. Uh, then the step up that becomes even more controversial for many people, PSA means that God is angry about our violation and that anger has to go somewhere. Hmm. And so PSA is often tied to that the father who's angry at our sin pours that wrath out on the son who loves us enough to die for us. Hmm. So there's four different levels. There's atonement, we need something to get us back to the tree of life. There's a penal or substitute. There, somebody does the work for us rather than us have to do it ourselves. Hmm. 
penal is as a penalty for our betrayal. And then the, what it often means is the wrath of the father goes on to the loving son. Mm. So I agree with the first three, but not with the fourth. Oh, okay. And for, for the audience, ju- just in case they missed it, can you go back and, and just reframe the fourth? What is the fourth view and why do you disagree? Yep. <laughs> just in case we missed it. Uh, that the love, that the angry father who is angry simply because his justice makes him angry at sin. Hmm. And that anger has to go somewhere. Hmm. And the anger of the angry father is poured out on the loving son who loves us enough to take the father's wrath. Hmm. And that's the white hot wrath. It's the horror of the cross, far worse than the physical or honor, shame, pain. Hmm. Yeah, that that's really good. Those are really good summaries. You know, it, ma- it makes me think that churches often, the, the pastoral preaching in a church is going to emphasize right. different aspects of the atonement theory, uh, the idea of what exactly happened on the cross. Even if that church doesn't actually use terms like penal substitutionary atonement or Christus Victor or whatever atonement theory they subscribe to, it's going to come out in the preaching. Right. So. Growing up in Calvary Chapel, and specifically my dad's church, Calvary Chapel Vista, I feel like the the concepts of you are a sinner and your sin, the wages of sin, are is death. The punishment that you deserve for your sin is death. But Jesus paid that price for you. That was never in question at our church. That that was always a part of the teaching. Not so much the emphasis on the angry God burning with wrath against humanity, but definitely the idea that God hated sin and that sin was deserving of punishment. So there there was there was the emphasis on the sin, the need for punishment, Jesus paying the debt. I remember listening to Keith Green yeah. uh-huh. uh, songs growing up, and he had that one song, Some People Won't Find Out Until It's Too Late, with the lyrics, someone had to pay the price. You could pay it yourself yeah. or find someone else, but yeah. who would be that nice to pay a debt that wasn't his? Well, I know someone like that. It's Jesus. So, yeah, I, I remember the, the, that imagery in my mind growing up, those, those lyrics, and so I, I feel like I grew up at my church with a, a good balance of the understanding of God's love and mercy, and yet his wrath and and the need for justice. Good. A lot of people don't. Yeah, Yeah. no, right. That's true. And and that's a part of why I think this discussion is so important. So Gary, if it's okay, I'd like to set up, I'd like to frame for us this debate and then turn it over to you and, and have you speak into it. Yeah. Great. Okay. So when it comes to PSA, there's been a lot of debate on this topic over the years. Right. Some people really seem to hate the concept of the atonement looking this way. Some have likened the idea of God sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins as cosmic child abuse. Right. And, you know, to, to some extent, I can sympathize with where they're coming from because, you know, I'm about to have my own son. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the thought of forcing him to die for the sins of other people, that that's not a fun thought for me. That That's a pretty dark thought. It's, it's not personally something I would do. Right. It, it makes me really uncomfortable. And so, you know, I could understand where the critics are coming from in saying that PSA does not seem to line up with the heart or the character of God. Well, as you, if you define it, it absolutely does not. Right. It's, it's a mischaracterization. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, if it's if this is the father forcing the son to come and get killed, that is child abuse. Right. Uh, hmm. But that's not the point. Hmm. The, uh, biblically, this is God and God. It's not the powerful father and the helpless son. Hmm. And that the son is fully committed to this process himself. Hmm. So it's not that he is being beaten up by an angry father. 
It's that he and the father are partnering together to make atonement. Yes, love that. And and that concept is a huge thing we're going to discuss in this episode. Uh, I, I love that you're pointing out the reality of how easy it is to get this wrong and to mischaracterize this topic. The, you know, uh, there's there's other people in the debate that would probably be you and yeah. me. We, we'd fall on the side of people who would argue no, what happened on the cross was not cosmic child abuse. And right. that, that characterization is a gross misrepresentation of both God's heart and what actually happened on the cross. So I want to give a, a little bit of time to you to have you set up this debate. You have been around in the theological spheres for a long time, in the seminary spheres for a long time. Could you share your reflections with us on on this debate, how it came to be, and, and, and kind of where it is now? Well, the 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 spark point is what you described, the powerful, angry father forcing the loving, kind son. Hmm. That is, first of all, it's a caricature. Almost nobody teaches that. Hmm. So it's people who are actually against the idea of substitution of any kind, that we don't need a substitute to take a penalty for us right. of any kind or to pay a price for our sin. And it's actually what you see in a lot of the critical theory discussions about defunding the police or reforming prisons. Okay, I, I was not expecting you to go there. Well, that's it's the same idea, though. That's hmm. where it's coming from. It's the same cultural context. Okay, okay. And so people that put uh, people in jail are evil people. And these aren't your words. You're speaking from the perspective of those who have an aversion to the penal form of justice. Mm -hmm. Okay, I see. And so what we should do is recognize that the criminal has been abused and hurt people hurt people. So what we need to do is forget the police, forget the prisons. We need to do psychologists and such to help the abused person heal so he won't hurt people and stop doing crime. Mm, yeah, I've, I've heard that line. Of thinking and the idea, before. that's where it comes yeah. from. It's the same thing that drives uh, criminal reform hmm. is we the idea that we actually have done some things deserving of some sort of a penalty is the underlying touch point. Hmm. And that's where the so it's a resistance to justice. That's correct. Hmm. This this idea that people should not yep. be punished for their yep. crimes or for their sins, but yep. instead reformed. And so this particular debate is fairly recent. Mm, wow. I mean, it's in the past. Well, in the form it's taken right now, it's only been in the past generation. Mm. This It was just beginning to develop. I've been doing this for oh, 45 years. I've been teaching theology. Right. And this debate has really developed since I started teaching. Hmm. And the critical theory stuff and police reform in the sense we're doing it now is about the same era. Okay, okay. And the idea is penalty for crime is brutality. Hmm. That we need to recognize these are good people who've been messed up by culture or abuse or something like that. It's actually Rousseau wow. in the Romantic Enlightenment that's really taken on a new form. So there's no penalty is never okay. Mm. Same thing in child rearing. Don't ever, ever punish or discipline your child. Mm. Just affirm him and redirect him. Right. But don't ever give him a timeout or anything like that. Wow. It's the same thing. Okay. That's where this is all coming from. It's from yeah, that. Yeah. No, it's, start, uh, it's starting to make sense. Well, going back, it's Dr. Spock in his <laughs> theory of child rearing. Not Mr. Spock, the <laughs> Star Trek guy. Dr. Spock in his very powerful book that came out just about the time I well a little bit earlier. Hmm. And it's it don't ever punish anybody. That's the wrong thing to do. Hmm. So any kind of punishment that comes on Messiah is 
is wrong. Right. Uh, under this, this idea, under this framework. Yeah, that's interesting, man. I, I would have never made that connection, but I think there's definitely something to what you're saying. You know, I've actually seen this line of thinking really emphasized with my friends who would consider themselves in the stream of progressive yes. Christianity, Absolutely. Uh, where there's really this love of God's mercy, but but there's this real aversion to his justice or or his wrath. Absolutely. And, and a lot of times the people that are struggling with that are, are, are sort of reacting to yep. experiences that they've yep. had yep. in more theologically conservative churches that may have really overemphasized God's wrath. And I, I feel like it's really easy for us to make mistakes in our theology when we're constantly swinging to one extreme or the other, e- right? Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> you, you know, for, yeah. for me, I, I, I know the way that I'm naturally bent. Yeah. In my theology, I actually, I personally lean towards emphasizing God's grace and his mercy more than I do his wrath. And I've, I've realized that that, that for me can be a blind spot because when I look in the scripture, both things are there. God's justice is there. His mercy is there. So we need to find ways to balance it. And see, that's where, that's where I argue that when we read scripture, we should do it in a community Mm. that's ethnically, culturally, Mm. socioeconomically, theologically tribish, diverse community. Mm. And that lowers the cultural lenses that I inevitably bring to scripture. Mm. So I'm reading somebody's from a honor shame culture. I'm more a, a power fear culture in our society now. I read somebody's a law and order type person. I mm. read it with somebody who's poor, somebody who's rich, and, and so on. I read it. I might even read it with someone's dang Calvinist. You know who knows? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I speak lightly. But in a diverse, and that rules out some of these cultural lenses we inevitably bring to scripture. Right. So, so Gary, it sounds like you land, as, as would I, in, in sort of this category of believing in the, the punishment side of things, believing that, that humans are deserving of punishment, and yet there's this balance between God's justice and his mercy. Where, do you, where are you drawing your view from? Can you point us in scripture to, to where that's coming from? Well, there's a number of them. Uh, I mean, just straight up scripture. One of my favorite scriptures in this whole kind of thing is Isaiah 53. Hmm. You know, it's kind of everybody's favorite messianic passages. Right. Uh, you know, he had despised and rejected a man of suffering. Okay, we get that. But you keep reading verse 5, Isaiah 53, 5. He is pierced for our transgressions. Hmm. He's crushed for our iniquities. Hmm. And it goes on the punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds were healed yeah hmm. uh, you know we've all gone astray he turned our own way and then verse six the lord has laid the iniquities all on him hmm. and uh, i mean that's just one passage but you look back in in genesis adam and eve are driven out of the garden hmm. and when they try to get back on their own terms there's they can't do that right but the idea that there's that there's a some sort of a penalty for betrayal you know when i look in just ordinary society everybody believes that somebody who's betrayed me got to pay i don't think i should pay but the person who betrayed me they got to pay right we all have penalty written into it even the kindest and gentlest person when they are betrayed or violated they're ticked yes when somebody steals their credit card and ruins their credit 
they think that guy ought to pay. Yes, yeah. So it's just, it, it's ironic that some of the strongest no penalty really believe in penalty when they're the ones that are hurt. Yes, so true, so true. You know, one thing that comes to my mind is, you know, you're talking about how even those of us who might have aversions to justice and, and law and order and punishment, yes. yeah. everybody actually does have a sense of justice. And you see that manifested in progressive spheres right. in sort of the online social media call-out culture. There's this current idea right now in our society where we're basically, you know, when it comes to social media, if you say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing, that it goes against the cultural norm, you know, or if it comes out that you said something inappropriate or did something inappropriate, even if it was 10 years ago, the, the, the sense from social media, like Twitter and things like that is not like, oh, you know, no punishment, just be a better person. It's no, we will descend on you and Mm -hmm. we will Mm -hmm. completely cancel you, ruin your career, wipe you out of existence. And I'm not, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be consequences for things that were said and yep. done that were wrong even if it was 10 years ago there absolutely should be i'm just trying yep. to point out that we all have yep. this standard of yep. justice uh, even and the phrase now is hold accountable right yeah <laughs> but it's the same thing it's there's penalty yeah that we we want justice we want wrongs to be righted right. and, and so even modern progressive culture has that sense of justice it just looks slightly different than you know, some of these other ways we're looking at it. That's correct. Now, now on the flip side, I want to ask you, Gary, in the theologically conservative camp, are there ways that you feel that there have been well-meaning pastors who affirm PSA, but they've given it a bad rap through poor representation and poor preaching? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. All well, right. All right. Uh, just like in contemporary stuff around criminal stuff, you get the really strong law and order Right. Put him in the jail and throw away the key kind of stuff. Right. You know, there's no attempt to rehabilitate him, those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And in the same thing, well, I'll, I'll just point to one of my heroes in the faith, Tim Keller. Mm-hmm. He is not a hardcore uh, guy, but he never <laughs> talks about atonement without talking about the why did Jesus quimper all the way to the cross mm-hmm. and Christian martyrs go laughing and, well, not laughing, they go singing triumphantly as they're being torn apart by lions. Wow. Why is Jesus such? a wuss and the point is he's not a wuss right he has to be he has to drink the white hot cup of god's frothing wrath mm. the the cup of of wrath that we see all through scripture mm. and because he has to do that that is so horrible mm. yeah and and not keller does it in a very pastoral kind of way but other people do it in a really strong law and order thing. Right, the God of right. justice cannot look on sin because he is holy and just. So he, that wrath is ex- just exploding because the the mass of sin. <laughs> and when Jesus takes our sin, therefore he merits his wrath. And they really get into this really hardcore if you do the crime, you got to pay the time. Right, right. And they just, they make justice in this vengeful justice. Mm. And it really does become vengeful. And they kind of glory in the God who's going to kill them. Mm. And and that's, again, where it comes out. Them are bad guys and God's going to kill you. He's going <laughs> to, you're going to burn in hell forever. Right. And, but if Jesus takes your penalty, he takes the fires of hell for you mm. there on the cross. 
and they just get carried away with this stuff, and it's it becomes a very, very, I think, vengeful God, and desperately misportrays the character of God. Mm, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, I think I think I think it can be so easy for us to misrepresent God and misportray God because we're constantly swinging to either one extreme or the other. Like, like for instance, I've read right. Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, and, and I find things in that where I'm like, man, I feel like he's misportraying God's character. But then, you know, I've also read Brian Zahn's response to that book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, and I feel yeah. like he gets some things wrong uh, yeah. and swings mm-hmm. too far in one direction. Well, see, they're both writing a cultural context. Mm. Jonathan Edwards, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man, is writing a context where they put people in stocks to publicly shame them, and death penalty was not uncommon. Right, yeah. It was a much more harsh society, hmm. and so he tend to read the scripture in terms of you're a loathsome insect hanging over the fires of hell. <laughs> right. But where he comes to is God in his love redeems you from that place. Right. Now, I'm not a huge Edwards fan, and certainly yeah. not in his theology. Yeah, me neither. But that's where he's coming from. That makes sense. You know, thinking about Edwards, it reminds me of conversations with Christians that I've had where I'd, I would define them as law and order Christians. Yep. <laughs> and, you know, Christians that have a very strong sense of justice, a very high appreciation for mm-hmm. God's wrath, but not a very strong yep. appreciation for his mercy or his love. And w- when I've talked to those Christians... Yeah, there's there's times in our conversations where they'll be dealing very harshly with a sinner and, and there's this strong desire, you know, like, oh, I can't believe this sinner and God needs to come against them with his wrath. And the place that I go to with them is, you know, I'll say, OK, on, on the one hand, like, yes, like, yes, sinners deserve God's judgment. Absolutely. But, but I feel like we can't lose sight of the nature of God's mercy. And the, the place that I go to is I try to remind people, you know, n- no matter what you have done as a sinner, because we're all sinners, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And, and so you can look at one person, you know, in, in our society, you know, the different crimes have different punishments. You know, somebody robs a liquor store, that's going to be one punishment. Someone commits mass murder, that's going to be a much harsher punishment, right? But but for all of us, right. every single sinner, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. So no matter what society says about your sin, according to God's standard, all of us are guilty and worthy of death. All of us deserve the spiritual death penalty, not just the physical death penalty, but actually the spiritual death penalty, which is way worse than physical death. Amen. And so I try to remind yeah. people, like, what has Jesus saved you and I from? Like, he has saved us from the the spiritual death penalty, eternal death. And we have been saved from so much, right. even though we are deserving of so much penalty. And so I just try to remind people, keep that in mind when you're looking at someone and evaluating and judging their sin. Yes, yes, criminals should be punished. Yes, we need criminal justice. Yes, we need criminal reform. Right. But we need to remember to hold that tension of mercy and love in our heart because we have been shown such great mercy and love, even yep. though we were worthy yep. of death. Yeah, that's good. And one of the things that I always do is take people back to the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible. Mm. And, you know, John Mark Comer now written a book on that, and there are others, but John Mark's is really good. God has a name. Yes. Yeah, I've read it. So good. And that verse is Abraham, uh, Moses in the cleft to the rock. And the first thing it says is God announces his character is, I am compassionate, I care, gracious, mm. I help, mm. slow to anger. Yeah. 
not slithing, wrathful, <laughs> right. loving, faithful, forgiving, yes. but does not leave the guilty unpunished. Mm, yes. And you've got to have that last phrase in there to get the full character there. But his lead is that he's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger. Yes. Wow. But the, the does not leave the guilty unpunished. That's the one that refuses his forgiveness, will not admit that they need, have needs and continue to worship and serve the other gods and mm. destroy a righteous community. Yeah, right. Like there's this standard of justice where sin must go punished, but then there is this offer for anyone, no matter how great their sin, that they can escape the punishment if they just simply pledge their allegiance to Jesus, which is incredible. That's an incredible offer. Yeah, that's good. All right, Gary, so I've been really enjoying this conversation so far. The next place that I want to go is I want to get to that question of what actually happened on the cross. And so to to set it up, I'm going to share a clip from our mutual friend, Evan Wickham. Uh, Evan is the pastor at Park Hill Church. He's my former youth pastor, and he's your former student at Western Seminary. And it was actually some correspondence between you and him that inspired this entire episode. Back in 2014, he was prepping for a sermon to teach Mark chapter 15, the death of Jesus. And as he was wrestling through some of these concepts, he reached out to you to ask some questions. And it was your response that just stuck with me for the last seven years. And so I'm glad that that finally we're making some content based around this. So I'm going to go ahead and let Evan set it up. I'm going to play a clip from his sermon where he goes through wrestling through this issue of what happened on the cross. And he's going to detail some of the correspondence he had with you. So let's go ahead and listen to what Evan has to say here. So let's keep reading. Verse 34. I feel like I had an out of brain experience this week just trying to wrestle through this. Verse 34 says, and at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? (laughs) All week I've been haunted by that. To be honest, I'm actually kind of dreading even venturing into this one just because of the, the deep mystery of it and yet the harsh reality of it. Um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uttered by the God, man in Christ, Jesus Christ. Like, like how does this work? God in Christ crying out, my God, why have you forsaken me? I feel godless and I'm God. It's like, what is happening? <laughs> Figure that one out. Mind shut off, fatal error system shut down, rebooting. So what's going on here? As Christians, we know that Jesus died for our sins, right? Jesus died for our sins. And we can, we can wrap our minds around what that means for us. Absolutely. Like any four-year-old that places their little faith in Jesus from day one can begin wrapping his or her mind around what Jesus died for our sins means for us. Um, but verse 34, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, Jesus? Like verse 34 forces us out into crazy waters where we are forced to engage the question, what does Jesus dying for our sins mean for Jesus? And that's that's an intense place to launch out into, but we have to because we're here. Um, So here's, here's how I come at it. In Stuart Townend's worship song, like how deep the Father's love for us, you know, how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. Love it, beautiful, super rich hymn. 
but, and I use the word but kind of intentionally, he writes, how great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away. And then uh, there's another song we sing. I love the song, I sing it a lot. Bethel Music's Forever. It says, one final breath he gave as heaven looked away. And uh, I don't know about that. So the question is, did the Father, God, abandon slash turn away slash separate from Jesus at the cross? Is that what the biblical authors teach? Is that what Jesus is shouting here in verse 34? Jesus absolutely bore our sin and shame as our faithful substitute. That's Christianity 101 for sure. But let me ask you, this is kind of where I'm going with this. Is it an explicitly biblical idea that there was some kind of breach of relationship within the Trinity, or is that just implied and systematically inferred through an imposed filter? Um, So I emailed our friend, Dr. Gary Bashirs, (laughs) about this. He runs the theology department at Western. He's no slouch. Uh, He's a family friend here at, at Jesus Church. And here's his response. Here it is. This is Gary in an email to me three days ago. As I see it, The picture of the Father pouring wrath out on the Son leaves out two key points. One, the wrath of the Son on sin, because Revelation 6.14 says he has that. And the agony of the Father who crushes his Son. Isaiah 53.10 says that. So my current phrase is, and here's his axiom, my current phrase is, the Father and the Son partner together both agonizing to perform the substitutionary sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of both the Father and the Son. There it is. (laughs) It's a partnership. The Father and the Son partnering together, both agonizing up to and through the cross, both dealing with sin head on, no enmity, only partnership. And then there's Jesus' own words, the night he was betrayed, he said, John 16, 32, listen to this. When you all run away from me and leave me alone, I won't be alone because my Father's with me. Jesus' own words the night before he died. So good, man. I I remember hearing that years ago, and it stuck with me. And 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 I just I want to pick this apart with you. It, so so Gary, later in the convo, we're gonna revisit the points of things like those classic song lyrics and the right. question of did God actually turn His face away? Did God forsake Jesus? But for right now, can we focus in on this concept of the Father, the Son, the Spirit, the Trinity agonizing together on the cross? Where does that idea come from? Where are you pulling yeah. that from? There are three prophetic pictures of what happened on the cross. Mm. The Day of Atonement, uh, where the priest takes the two goats, kills one, confesses, and it takes away. The Passover, Mm. where the father brings the lamb into the house for a period of time, treating it like a family member, and then kills it Mm. and puts the blood on the doorposts. And then Abraham Isaac sacrifice in Genesis 22. Hmm. In this case, I'm looking at Abraham Isaac. Isaac's carrying wood up a hill, and it's act, that hill is actually Mount Zion or Mount Calvary. Right. And we get to the top. Abraham uh, lays him out on this altar and is about to slaughter him. Hmm. 
and then the angel of the Lord, the one, the second person of the Trinity who will indeed in, eventually be incarnate and will die on that hill, is the one that says, stop. Right. Uh, I think what happens there in that picture, we understand the agony of Jesus mm. because it's our agony. Mm. But that picture, and you go back and look at Abraham is feeling as he's carrying, as he and his son are walking up that hill. And when his son says, Daddy, where's the lamb? <laughs> And well, you know, Abraham knows who the lamb is. It's it's his son. <laughs> right. And as he's walking up that hill, which is a long journey, and then he lays his son out and lifts the knife to slaughter his son. Mm. I'm a dad. I'm a granddad. Mm. Uh, it, and you're about to be a dad, Heron. Yeah. Yeah. I, right. Like the, the thought of my son going through that is, is horrible. Yes. And I think that's the picture. That's the a picture, mm. but a primary picture of what the father is feeling mm. as he is sacrificing his son. Wow. And Isaiah 53, 10, it says specifically the father is going to crush the son, mm. not for divine abuse jollies, right? Yeah. but because that's the way atonement's going to be accomplished. Wow. And that's how far the compassion of the father is willing to go. Mm. So the agony of the father who is going to sacrifice his own son and nobody told him to do it. He's mm. doing it out of right. that deep desire to bring us back to the tree of life yes. on terms that will be good for all of us. Mm. So good. That's the picture I draw it from. The agony of the son, when we get the garden, although ironically, a lot of people deny that Jesus really agonizes because he's God and knows it's all going to work out in the end. <laughs> so he's just going through some motions, which is nuts. <laughs> no, totally, because he's sweating drops of blood. Oh, uh, detail. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. But I've got, I mean, I've got pictures of Jesus is resting in perfect peace because he is trusting the Father as he prays in the garden. It's just I mean, that's how far things can go. Hmm. We understand the agony of the son. I think we miss the agony of the father. And and I, I think as a compassionate God, if I think of the Hosea Gomer story, which is another picture of the character of God that leads off the whole Minor Prophets, Book of the Twelve, it's the agony of Hosea as his wife is going off into prostitution and what he's willing to do to bring her back. Mm. But again, the feelings of a man who loves his wife and seeing her and has what he has to do so, yeah, the agony of the Father, I think, is essential to mm. bring into. And it's not just agony. There's justice as well. Yeah, right. Mm. But we've got to get the agony of the Father in there. Yeah, that's that's so good. I, I love your view, Gary, because to me, it's such an elegant and simple way to sort of ease the tension yep. of that question. <laughs> of what is the father doing to the son on the cross? No, it, it's instead drawing our attention to what are the father, the son, and the spirit doing together correct. on the cross? That's correct. I, I love that. I, yep. lo I love what you're doing there because, yep. you know, it's totally reframing the context of the story. And it just highlights to me how important it is to understand this stuff because it's understandings and misunderstandings that separate it from us thinking that God has forced his own son to die for the sins of other people. And then while the son is hanging on the cross, it's like the father is standing behind him, whipping him with this spiritual metaphysical wrath whip. Instead, it's believing the father, right. the son, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity knew from the dawn of right. time before humans existed that this would be their plan. They, they would suffer this horrible death, not just physical violence, but That's also correct. bearing sin as well. The, the guilt and the shame yeah. of humans. They, they knew that yeah. they would have to face it. And, you know, of course, they could have just thrown up their hands and given up on humanity because they, they, knew, they could see into the future. They knew if we make these humans, they're going to rebel. They're going to turn against us. They're going to unwittingly join the demonic 
satanic rebellion against us, they could have just said, forget this, let's start over on another planet, Mars or whatever. But instead, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they, they suffer long with humanity. They were willing to hang on a cross and die to have Jesus suffer this death. It's just, it's, it's phenomenal to me and it's powerful. Well, that's where I like that song, how deep the Father's mm-hmm. love, that he is willing to go through this. In, in the Passion of the Christ, the, at the end of the atonement, you see this huge tear falling from heaven. Mm, wow. And that's the way they're, tr- the, they're trying in that movie, they're trying to show the, the agony of the Father. And, uh, and this tear, of course, changes everything when he hits the ground. But that's the Father crying over what's happening. I actually like that picture. I'm just can't wait to see what the chosen does with oh, that. Man, you know, I've I've only actually seen the first episode. Dude, <laughs> turn this thing off right now and get over there and start watching the chosen. <laughs> oh man. Okay. All right. Bye, everybody. See you later. Um, you know, I'm I'm actually yeah. thinking through uh, when I have my son having designated times where we sit down and watch the chosen and the Bible project and learn. Yeah. Together. <laughs> I, I just think it'd be a, it'd be a great way to learn. Of course. You know? <laughs> you, you know, one thing I like about what I've seen of the chosen so far is there's so much heart and creativity put into it. And, and, and they do take some creative liberties, you know, with the source material. Oh, it's putting a lot of creativity. Right. Yeah. But it's keeping the structure of the story. And I think, yes. I think that's how we should read scripture yeah. is within the, the structure of the story. Mm. We bring our own experience into it and make it live. Yes. So good. You know, I, I want to take it back to this conversation about the atonement and what happened on the cross, because I feel like a lot of times people can really get God's heart and his character wrong. Like they can they can look at God and they can see some of the judgments that he passed and some of the things that he did and just see him as this violent and, and vengeful and angry God who hates sinners and wants to destroy sinners. And that's that's his main character that he presents in their mind. And when I when I talk to people who are struggling through this, my my thought that I say to them is look at the story, look at the narrative. The story clearly tells us this God was so concerned about you that he was willing to die. Like he he willingly was willing for himself to die. You know, like we talk about, you know, God putting his son to death, like the Trinity tells us that the father and the son and the spirit are one. They are God. It, we serve, we, we worship one God. And so it's like God, it wasn't that God was willing to kill somebody for you. God himself was willing to die for you. And so that should be a huge indicator for us about the nature of God's character. Whatever is going on behind the scenes in the spiritual metaphysical realm, like it, it, it is a story of love. It's a story of compassion. It's a story of a God who was so, it, it's like uh, Josh White says, the God who was not content to live without you. And so he died so that he could be with you. It's incredible. Exactly. Yeah, that connection of the full character of God, hmm. which is certainly compassion, but not only compassion, yes. is critical. Right. And that the the depth of agony that the Father and Son are willing to go into, just uh, to me, it, it only brings incredible gratitude and a genuine deep, that's the kind of God that I want to worship and serve. Hmm. And I can take that God anywhere. Yeah. Wow.
All right, so Gary, let's let's talk for a minute about song lyrics. <laughs> I remember when I was a youth pastor at camp, I actually had some kids come up to me one time and say, "Hey, that song that we sang during the service, there was a lyric, the father turned his face away." Yep. And you know how deep the father's love for us. Uh, the lyric is, "How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away, as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory." And and then, you know, there's a Bethel song forever that says one final breath he gave as heaven looked away Mm -hmm. and i had my students at camp ask me is that actually what happened did god actually turn his face away from jesus does god turn his face away from us what's what's going on there and so i want to turn to you gary do you think that this is a theologically accurate concept that we find in these songs yeah that's a lot it has to do with how you interpret the song lyric Hmm. okay I, so I'll just kind of go where I come from, and then we can unpack it a bit. Right. I, in, in the garden, Adam and Eve suffered spiritual death immediately. As hmm. soon as they ate the fruit, when God comes and calls, they hide in the bushes. Right. That relationship is dead. Now, God doesn't give up on them, and he does drive them out of the garden, but he goes with them. But spiritual death comes immediately Physical death doesn't come for a long time and later. It comes inevitably, but the first thing is spiritual death. Right. I think Jesus went through that same order on the cross. Hmm. And I'll grant quickly, this is a theological construction, not a teach, direct teaching of scripture. Okay, okay. But I think, and I, I do follow a recapitulation as one of my theories. I think Jesus had to go through the same things that Adam went through and we go through. Hmm. Uh, so I think he does suffer spiritual death which is a broken relationship between the father and the son. Hmm. Uh, Not an ontological breaking. He didn't stop being God. The Trinity is not ended. But it's the sort of thing that happens in a marriage. Uh, Sharon, I've been at 53 years. We've never had a voice-raised conflict. (laughs) So I can't speak from our perspective, but I can speak to others, which I've worked with. Hmm. Uh, The marriage is real, they're husband and wife, but the husband and wife are so angry at each other, they can't even look at each other. Hmm. That's a relational breaking. Right. I think the father and son on the cross did have that relational breaking because Jesus took the full steps, including spiritual death in our place. Hmm. Now, again, that's a theological construction. You cannot make that from just the father turns his face away. Right, yeah. Because in that context of Psalm 22, uh, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? The next parallel line is, why are you so far from saving me, hmm. so far from my cries of anguish? Hmm. I cry out by day, you do not anger, by night I find no rest. What that's in the context of Psalm 22 is, you do not save me from my agony. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, it is why do you uh, forsake me does not does not mean the father is has gone away right or something like that in the context of the psalm yeah he's still present but i do think that that is a picture along with the three hours of darkness is that broken relationship that jesus goes through yeah taking our spiritual death to himself i think that's what's happening there okay okay Uh, but the fact that well God cannot look on sin, which again is a thing that comes into this. Absolutely, God can look on sin. He hmm. looked on Adam hmm. and Eve. He looks on, I mean, all kinds of people. Of course, he looks on sin. <laughs> right. God can't be in the presence of sin. I hope you're wrong. But again, look <laughs> at Adam and Eve. They yeah. sin, God comes. Hmm. Isaiah sees God high and lift up in the temple. 
is God is coming to the sinner to bring him cleansing. Hmm. Yeah, God can absolutely be in the presence of sin. Hmm. What he can't do uh, is be in sin and have it unchanged over the long haul. Okay, in- interesting. Uh, because his his power is going to either clean you up or end up with you driven away because you can't stand being in that. So I don't think the... Hmm. Father turns his face away is saying necessarily uh, that it's spiritual death, but I do think that's indicated there. Okay. So, yeah. The Father turns his face away just absolutely quoting scripture, so I can't really complain about that lyric. Right. Heaven turns his face. What verse do you get that from? uh, Psalm 22, where he says, oh, why have you forsaken me? Sorry, that's not quoting scripture. I take that back. Oh, God. Yeah, that's okay. So... This is a concept that's kind of new for me. I haven't heard it put this way. Can I pick at it a little bit? Yeah. I I just want to make sure that I'm understanding, you know, where you're coming from and what you're meaning. So when I think of... You're talking about Jesus and God facing relational separation on the cross. And, you know, when I think about relational separation, I'm thinking about usually the reason it happens is because um, because somebody has done something wrong in a relationship. Somebody has sinned against someone else. A husband, you know, has sinned against his wife so greatly that there is this relational damage and separation because of what someone has done. Right. But but Jesus didn't do anything. That's correct. Yeah. So so it's like that that's hard for me to parse what you're saying because it's like it's like Jesus hasn't he himself hasn't sinned. He himself hasn't done anything wrong uh to hurt the father. He hasn't done anything wrong to warrant separation. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. See, that's the sinless substitute. Hmm. So the Second Corinthians 5.21, uh, God made him who had no sin to hmm. be sin hmm. for us. Okay. I think that's far more than he just takes the guilt of sin. Hmm. I think it makes him to be sin in some inexplicable way. Hmm. And so while he has done nothing personally to offend, as our substitute, he does take that, and I think that's what leads to the spiritual death. I, I take a very high view of when it says he became sin for us. Mm. It's not just he paid the penalty for our sin, he actually became sin for us, what Second Corinthians 5 says. Wow. I don't understand that. Wow, yeah. How can that be? But I do know if you look at an honor shame context, uh, if I'm in a, if I, I've done a lot of stuff in, in Taiwan and Middle East, and I know a little bit about the honor shame, when I go to somebody who has committed a shameful act and I go associate with them, I am bringing shame on myself, even though I've done nothing, hmm. uh, in one sense, I've done nothing to deserve that shame, just by asso- associating with a shamed person. Of course, that same thing is true in the cancel culture today. <laughs> right, yeah. You know, so you've been canceled and I go befriend them, now I get canceled yeah, too. Yeah, guilty by association. And, and that's the analogy I use for what happens on the cross, but no analogy explains, I think, what happens. Okay, there. yeah, no, so, so I, I use the word metaphysical a lot on this show and sometimes like I doubt uh, my usage of words okay you know my vocabulary it's like okay do do I really know what this word means I actually googled metaphysical recently and the definition was things outside of the Norman human realm of understanding and logic so it checks out right it's proper usage right so when we're talking about something metaphysical that's happening behind the scenes it's it's something in the spiritual realm 
that as humans, we can't really comprehend what's going on on the cross. So we're just doing our best with the clues that we have in scripture, trying to piece together this, this puzzle. And so, yeah, there's a lot of mystery. There's a lot of mystery to it. Right. You know, you know, thinking about that song lyric again, the father turned his face away. One way I can parse it out and make it make sense is if I think of it not as the father turning away in disgust from Jesus and saying, oh, you know, how how dare you, Jesus? How dare you commit these sins? Because he didn't commit the sins. Instead, what if it's the father, like if you were forced to watch the execution of someone that you loved, like you you would, that would be hard. Like you you wouldn't be able to look at that. You you would turn your face away because you wouldn't be able to bear the the burden of watching the person that you love die in such a horrible way. So maybe that's it. Maybe it's... it's that that's the heart yeah. of the song is God turning his face yeah. away because he can't bear to watch. The piece here is that the Gettys and Stuart Townend are very clear in their theological mm. perspective and they come from a fairly staunch reform perspective and do uh, believe the father poured his wrath out on the son. I see. Okay. So knowing their theology, I do we interpret songs by the author's intent hmm. or do we interpret songs by the reader's res- uh, the singer's response of course is a bigger yeah. question it's probably we should interpret things by the way that they were written so if we're going there i i think the next question i would have is is this something that is important <laughs> like should pastors care about possibly incorrect theology in the worship songs their church sings yes okay all right yes Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so I, I saw that Evan had mentioned in, in his Facebook post seven years ago about all this that his church changed the lyrics to some of these songs, like the song Forever by Bethel. He revised it. Instead of one final breath he gave, as heaven looked away, the Son of God was laid in darkness. He flipped some stuff around, and instead it says one final breath he gave, the Son of God was slain, and heaven's light was laid in darkness. What do you think, Gary? Is it is it appropriate for us to to rearrange these things if we if we are convicted about yeah. the theology in the song? Well, there's copyright issues that for <laughs> right. legality you have to worry about some things there. Right. But okay, yeah, I take it back. I, I, I don't I want to get we, anyone in trouble. Well, heaven did not change I, the I, song lyrics. I will I will stand with the idea. <laughs> that as long as I'm giving credit, I think I can switch some lyrics Hmm. as long as I indicate that to the people and why I'm doing it. Okay, all right. Uh, Because there's a teaching in that too, because everybody's probably heard that song and then why are you changing the lyrics? I do the same thing with reckless love. I will never sing God's reckless love. I will sing his faithful love. Mm. I know what they're trying to get at with the idea of reckless, but right. God is not reckless. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, or, you know, the, the, the sloppy wet kiss song, <laughs> yes. which I first time I heard that, yes. I just had a heart attack. <laughs> Golly, you know, God is not some dumb dog oh. trying to slop on my face. Oh, my gosh. Yes, this and, is uh, this is what our audience has been waiting for is Gary Brashear's definitive answer on the sloppy wet wet kiss question. <laughs> oh yeah. I, I love it, man. So good. Uh, yeah. I love your insight on this. It's, it's crazy because you can actually find like internet debates that are miles long about that. But see what we have to do is when we do those things, yes, let's differ on those things. Right. Uh, but we have to do it around the communion table. Mm. We have to do it as members of the family who are committed to die for each other. Right. Yes. And so we can have family arguments around the table, mm. but we're still sitting around the table. And that's the piece that is not happening, especially when you're doing the Internet. Hmm. We are not sitting around the communion table. So are you saying, Gary, that it is perhaps not the best way for us to develop our theology to do it through Facebook debates? You know, 
I think that's a horrible <laughs> way to develop your theology. Okay, right, makes yeah. sense. Unless you're friends, right, right, you know, and you're just not in the same area. But the internet wars are nothing more. It just we need to read the second half of Ephesians four regularly because mm. anger has now become a virtue instead mm. of an extremely yeah. dangerous thing. We need to resolve quickly. Mm. Forgiveness and gratitude are still Christian virtues. Well said, mm. as well as justice and righteousness. Yes. So, Gary, another big question we want to ask is, was Jesus actually forsaken when he was on the cross? On the cross, Jesus utters those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're going to ask, what do those words actually mean? And to set it up, I'm going to read more of Evan's sermon prep notes that he posted to Facebook back in 2014. Uh, This is from Evan's post. It's interesting that Jesus never addressed his father as God in all his years of ministry. He spoke of God when speaking to others, but never in his own communication with the father. In fact, there are two occasions on the cross where he addressed his father. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And this highlights still further the distinction from his quote of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, in Jesus dwell all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. This is called hypostasis, the fully divine humanness of Jesus. So, if there was an actual separation within the Trinity at the cross, if Yahweh abandoned Jesus, then either Jesus' Trinitarian theology was weak because he said God and not Father, or Jesus managed to separate his divine human natures, that is to say Jesus' divine spirit stayed divine, and Jesus' human soul was cast away, and the heretics at Athanasia were right. But, Evan says, the Athanasian heretics were wrong because the man Jesus is God. Then there are Jesus' own words the night he was betrayed. He said, when you all run away from me and leave me alone, I won't be alone because my father is with me. So what did Jesus mean when he shouted those God-forsaken words? What do you think, Gary? Why did Jesus say those words? Did God actually forsake Jesus on the cross? I think he's actually quoting Psalm 22 there. Hmm. And I think that's what he's doing. And Hmm. when, when he does that in that context, you cannot take that one line apart from the rest of the psalm. Hmm. Okay. Uh, the example that I use uh, is uh, do a deer. <laughs> right, yeah. And you think... Ray, a drop of golden sun. Why? Julie Andrews is why. <laughs> yeah, and even people have never seen the movie. Yeah, yeah, totally. Do a, a deer, deer, a female deer. deer. So when Jesus cries on the cross, that Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, Hmm. everybody, their mind immediately goes to the rest of the psalm. Hmm. Okay. And it's a powerful way of crying out his agony. Wow. So, So would you say in this moment, as he's crying out Psalm 22 on the cross, that he's trying to open up people's eyes to the Trinitarian reality of the Father, Son, Spirit being present in this moment? Uh, that may be a little much, okay. but it's coming out of his rich 
theology that brings him to the cross. Mm, okay. Uh, and he's been contemplating, mm. I think, the mm. whole time as he's going through all of this, he's been remembering the mission that he's on. Right. And we get hints of that from time to time in the gospel narratives. Yes. And this is one where he's on the cross, mm. just like jo Jonah in the belly of the fish. Right. His mind is going to scripture. Mm. And so he, he sings out or screams out, mm. cries out this one phrase, mm. but all the rest of that song is in there. Right. And uh, as we know, people have unpacked Psalm 22, a number of those things are end up speaking to things that are happening around the cross. But I think what he's doing there is when he thinks, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm in agony and I've got to go through this whole thing. I've got to drip the, I've got to finish up the cup and the cup there is a cup of suffering and death identified back in Matthew 20. Hmm. The cup is not the cup of wrath okay. because he said the disciples will also drink this cup back in Matthew mm. 20. Mm. So he's got to drink the fullness of the cup of suffering and death. Mm. Okay. I don't think he's drinking the cup of God's wrath. Mm. Just because it's a cup doesn't mean it's the cup of wrath. Mm. That metaphor gets used in a lot of ways. Yeah, right. It's and, a biblical design pattern. Yeah. Mm. So he has got to drink down fully the fullness of death as the Messiah. Mm. And it's, it's agonizing and many ways. Hmm. So I think he's singing that whole song, but only quoting that one verse, or at least a Matthew and Mark only do that. But I think he probably does just scream out the one verse, hmm. one phrase. Right. So what I'm hearing in all of this is it's not a picture of Jesus being pushed yep. away by yep. God, being rejected by God, being abandoned by God, but yep. actually it's the Father, yep. the Son, the Spirit, together on the cross, yep. agonizing, yep. Yep. saving the world. Yep. But in his human state, Jesus is able to feel the feeling of abandonment, that there's something going on. Right. There, there's something happening to Jesus in this moment where he is able to experience what it feels like to be separated from God, to have that wall of separation. We, we talk a lot about in preaching, you know, we talk about how sin creates this wall of separation between us and God. And so it, it's not this picture of Jesus sinning and that creating a wall of separation, but it's him mm -hmm. taking on our sin. It's him absorbing the, the guilt and the shame and the burden of every rape and murder and theft and abuse and betrayal, right. all, all of all of these horrible things that humans have done. Jesus takes that onto himself. And because of that, he experiences this distance. I believe that's true. This feeling of distance from the Father and, and from the Spirit. So he's, he's not forsaken, but he's able to feel forsaken. In that moment, he feels yeah. forsaken. Yeah. yeah. Now, he is forsaken in the sense that he's not saved in the moment. Right. God doesn't pull Jesus yeah. down from right. off the cross. So at the moment, hmm. he is not delivered from his agony. So hmm. in that sense, he is forsaken. But again, like you say, you have to look at the whole picture, not just the one moment. Hmm. That makes sense. Because I don't want to, I don't want to take down the the forsakenness of what's mm. happened there. Right. Uh, 
Well, I do think the Father is present with him the whole time. Mm. There's a sense in which, because he is in the depths of it, couldn't be in deeper agony, mm. uh, and God does not deliver him. For, that's what he cried out in the garden, Lord, mm. take this cup away from me. Right. Uh, it's going to be horrible, horrible, horrible. Mm. But he's going to go with it because that is the plan, and he's agreeing, but it's just going to be an awful journey. Mm. And that's true for us as followers of Jesus, is if we follow him, it's going to take us many times into places of the deepest agony. Yeah. And we go there in a certain sense with a sense of joy, even in the agony. Right. Because we know we're sharing and completing the sufferings of Jesus, as Paul says in Colossians. We do complete his sufferings by doing the same kind of thing, going willingly into the agony for the sake of redemptive purpose. That, that's really good. You know, I'm reading some of Evan's comments here again on Psalm 22. He's talking about Jesus fulfilling that messianic identity. In Psalm 22, he writes, it's spine tingling, pierced hands, dehydration, emaciation. Even Jesus' clothing made the prophecy. But later on in the Psalm, in verse 24, he says, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. So it's it's basically, it's right there in the Psalm. It's saying that God has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry from help. Even though there's this feeling of God forsakenness that's overwhelming, Yahweh has not hidden his face from him. It's That's, that's pretty mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. Hmm. And I do think he's going through spiritual death, which, hmm. but I'm not going to, you know, that's my construction, not a direct right. biblical teaching. Right, right. So I think that relationship has been broken, and that's a sense in which he's feeling for he's feeling forsaken mm. in those three hours there on the cross because he is that relationship is broken right so so what we're saying is essentially god didn't forsake jesus but in jesus's humanity he was allowed yeah. to suffer and to feel as if he was abandoned i mean would you say that was accurate yeah i'd say one he chose to feel that Mm. It's not that he allowed to do it. Okay. I see him more active than that. But yeah, it's it, it that he is I, that spiritual death. He, I think he does do that. But this is Gary saying, I think, right? Not Bible says. Well, I I know for one, I appreciate your insight. I I love all this because I think it helps people understand that Jesus really did struggle with the same things that they do as humanity. Jesus himself went through that dark night of the soul. You know, I was recently talking to a friend of mine, really, really tragic story, young guy. I used to be a volunteer in my youth group. Him and his wife were younger than than me and my wife. They were in their mid-20s. And his wife just died from COVID. It was just, yeah, just tragic, really, really terrible. And as I was chatting with him recently and just trying to encourage him, I ended up telling him, listen, man, I, I know for a fact that Jesus is with you right now in the depths of your struggle. But I also know that as you're going through this, the pain of this, there's going to be a lot of times where it feels like Jesus isn't with That's you. That's correct. There's going to be a lot of times where you feel like God has forsaken you. And I just want you to know that that's okay. And he's still there, even though it doesn't always feel like he is. And that's where the body of Christ comes in, because we're not meant to suffer alone. And and that what you're doing, Aaron, with your friend is exactly what should be happening. When you come beside him, you are Christ to him. Hmm. And he's 
he doesn't sense that, you know, I don't know what to say, the spiritual connection in the moment. Yeah. But when you're there with him, you are Christ with him. Mm. And that's where you need to corporate theology. You need to just come into this process as well. Yeah. Yeah. One, one teaching that's been really helpful for me in this is Tim Mackey taught a sermon uh, about Jesus the night he was in the garden when he was sweating those drops of blood. And he points out that as Jesus is sweating those drops of blood, what he's going through is actually what we could classify as a panic attack, as him dealing and struggling with anxiety. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and so Tim mentions that anytime he himself struggles with anxiety, he actually pictures Jesus in the garden, kneeling right next to him, suffering along with him. And it's this powerful picture of the concept of uh, the Emmanuel, yeah. you know, God with us. Yeah, Tim Mackey's a decent Bible guy. <laughs> yeah, no, I think so. <laughs> he's good. I love him. He's, he's been really influential on yeah. me and has just been a blessing to me and, and so many others. So I'm definitely thankful for him. Yeah. But going back to what he said, I think a lot of people actually really buck at these humanizing right. depictions of Jesus because they don't really want to see the image of Jesus weakened. So Gary, pastorally, how can we help people wrestle through this? And also, do you think there are dangers to humanizing Jesus too much? Oh, you can, you, there's danger in both directions. Hmm. In the theological tribes that I hang around with, the danger is far more on the side of, of over, it's docetism, the ancient heresy. Hmm. We, we are so protective of the deity of Jesus, we don't allow the humanity of Jesus to come through. Hmm. Okay. Uh, but in, in once you get out of uh, other parts, as you get into the more, I, I hate to use the term progressive, but that's kind of the current term. Right. Uh, once you get on that side, I'm not talking about, you know, way off in left field somewhere. <laughs> right. Uh, the, <laughs> they want to emphasize the humanity of Jesus, that mm. he's one of us, so much that they end up taking out the deity of Jesus. So mm. either direction and you weaken your Christology, how to hold those two in tension. Maybe we should do another podcast around that, too. There's a lot to say there. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other episode. Maybe you'll be our first guest to have a fourth time appearance. <laughs> well, I love doing these. Well, we, we love having you on. So as we're wrapping this episode up, I've got two bonus questions for you, Gary. The first one's about the atonement. When it comes to the atonement, we have a lot of different theories. There is the moral influence theory, the ransom theory, Christus Victor, satisfaction theory, PSA, governmental theory, scapegoat theory. Gary, what is the best atonement theory? The best one is a symphonic view that weaves all of those themes together hmm. in a rich blend. I, I, at one point, I made a decision back at the end of high school whether to go in uh, as a violin viola player to become a professional musician in symphony. I love symphony, but if you take a, a, a J.S. Bach or a Beethoven or somebody and the way they can weave themes together, a lot of the contemporary stuff that's behind movies, that's where classic music is today. Mm. You take somebody who can weave multiple themes together and it's just absolutely epic. Mm. Uh, and I think the best atonement theory is the symphonic one that puts together propitiation and, and substitution and redemption and revelation and triumph and mm. oh, I could just keep going you know there <laughs> uh, when when we did death by love we put 13 different themes in there mm. 
and the idea of weaving those together and how they weave together. The new book, uh, Mosaic of Atonement, goes through four themes and does them well. Hmm. I think you need at least a dozen, and you still do not adequately get the richness of what's happening. Hmm. So if you say, what is one theme? I'm going to say, nope, I refuse to go there. <laughs> it's the symphony that's the best. Love it. Love the balance. Love the nuance. It's hard, though, because there's always the people who are like, hey, what are you doing? Pick a side. <laughs> Which atonement theory? is the definitive one but yeah right. I, I, lo I love I love what you're doing there and and I love you know you're drawing attention to the need for us to look at a complex event and see it from multiple angles and that really helps us grasp like the the richness of it and the the profoundness and the mind-blowingness of it the like what happened on the cross can't just be put into yep. one box right it's 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 bigger yeah. than that and the piece i want to do there is get the richness of biblical teaching hmm. and so some and the thing is how do you do it coherently hmm. Because you can't just say, well, I'm a Calvinist and an Arminian at the same time because <laughs> there are incoherent parts between those two. How do you bring it together into a different theory instead of I'm... Well, you can come up with your own special term, right? Calminian. Calminian. I've done that, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't coin the term, but... Well, I appreciate it anyway. It's good stuff. So you mentioned wanting to bring people back to the richness of biblical teaching and scripture. And so my, that's what my last question touches on. I have a question about how all of this informs the way that we preach. Is it okay if I if I bug you about that? I'm doing Jesus sermon a week from Sunday, so give me some good stuff. All right. So I think this conversation about penal substitutionary atonement, Jesus's death on the cross, Jesus taking the punishment and the penalty, I think that this raises a difficult challenge for those of us who preach the gospel, especially to young people in the age of questioning, young people, postmoderns, especially those who wrestle with their faith and, and deconstruction. They're not afraid to critique Christianity or poke holes yep. in the logic of Christianity. I, I see that all the time. They're, they're very brave about how they go about doing that. And so I think that there's times right. when you try to explain atonement from the framing of PSA, like there was a crime done by you, you had a debt, Jesus paid that debt, you were guilty and worthy of death, but Jesus died for you and now you're free to go. In some deconstructionist circles, the kind of pushback that you get from laying out the gospel that way is like, oh, so what it sounds like is right. God created a system with a bunch of rules that he knew would be easily broken. God made it so that the punishment for breaking these rules would be the death penalty. And then God kills his own son in order to satisfy his lust for order and rule following. Yeah, God yeah. kind of sounds like a psychopath. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, do you get what I, I wouldn't worship that God either, just to be clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a mischaracterization that people can very easily form based on the context yep. that they, they have, the, the incomplete context that they have. So I, I want to run by you a, a shift, an adjustment that I've been making in my preaching for this specific audience, trying to be a good cultural missionary, right, to this specific audience. And I'm totally open to any constructive critique from you on this. If I'm doing it wrong, like, let me know what you think. Yeah. But here's where I'm at. The way I've started to lean in my preaching for young postmodern people is in my framing of the gospel. 
backing up a little bit from the penal legal analogies, which I, I know that they're there. I know they're in scripture. I know Paul and others use them. But I've been thinking through framing the story of the gospel in terms that lean more on the ideas of disease and cure. God creates this perfect world. Our sin, our disobedience corrupts the world, poisons it. It's sick. It's dying. We as humans are sick and dying because of our own rebellion. So I still put in some personal responsibility aspects there. And in this framework, it sort of focuses on the effects of sin, right. the wages of sin, because it's it's not only drawing attention for people to right. the reality that their own sin poisons them and now they'll die, but that the world itself is also poisoned. Turn on the news. What mm -hmm. do you hear about? Violence, war, rape, sexism, abuse, scandal, corruption, greed. So it's drawing attention to these things that people can see clearly with their eyes, that there is this sickness right. that we are dying from. And then it's letting them know that Jesus supernaturally right. steps in through this incredible act of sacrificial love. Instead of us dying from the disease, he dies to produce a cure through his death. Yep. He dies in our place. Yep. He absorbs the evil into himself and produces a cure in himself and through himself. Even though sin and death are powerful, he is incredibly more powerful. And so allegiance to Jesus cures us of our disease and opens the door for us to experience this resurrected, cured life. And so that's a direction that I'm leaning in as I try to present the gospel to young postmodern people who are often quite quite much more open to narrative than they are cold legal definitions. So, I mean, do you think taking that approach is a decent way to do it? Is there a danger in taking that kind of approach? It is This yeah. is something I'm wrestling through as I'm trying to develop as a preacher, so I'm fully willing to yep. submit to any critique. I completely agree. Yeah? Completely agree. That's encouraging. Because we have, we have, well, we have to begin the good news at the point where the person is hurting. Mm, yeah. And keep the proverbial Gen Z does not feel like they should be punished for anything. Mm. Rightly or wrongly, that's yeah. where they're feeling. True. But they are feeling battered and broken mm. by the power structures of this world. Mm. And that, that puts you into triumph theory, your disease thing. You know, there's, there's something going on because violence just won't go away. Why can't we all just get along is still a relevant question. Right. And so you're using an analogy that's legit. Mm. Because disease is one of the analogies in scripture to begin the conversation. So and what I would, how I say is I don't begin my gospel conversation with sin very often, <laughs> but we'll get there eventually yes. because people are on disease, infecting other people with their disease by yes. intent. There is absolutely sin involved. That, that's an analogy that young people I think can understand these days because of all the COVID stuff going on. You can infect yep. somebody if yep. you're not taking yep. precautions, like your, your sin has consequences. And so, yeah, I think yep. that's, yep. uh, <laughs> yep. absolutely. That's an interesting piece uh, to me of the puzzle. I, I think that, you know, for me in my preaching, I don't want to ever lead somebody to believe that sin is not a big deal. I want them to think it's poison and that it's it's designed specifically to kill their, not just their body, but their soul. But I want them to also understand the hope of Jesus and the light of Jesus and the potential of the kingdom and, and all of the amazing things that, that Jesus offers us. And also helping them understand the reality of the dark, destructive things that Jesus saves us from. Good stuff. Preach it, brother.
everybody. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. Man, I enjoyed that conversation so much. There was actually a little bit more, a tiny, tiny little bit, like two minutes worth uh, at the end there. But for some reason, the recording got interrupted. But uh, thankfully, the the large amount of this conversation was preserved. And man, what a great conversation it was. Gary did such a good job dealing with all of my long-winded questions and just dropping such good insight and truth. Um, I know for me that this conversation, uh, starting years ago when I heard Evan and Gary having this conversation, it impacted me so much and it's it's been on my heart to share this with people for years. And so uh, seeing this all come together, um, I am so stoked and blessed to be able to share this content with you. I hope it's challenged your way of thinking. I hope it's helped you in your thinking. I think that so often when it comes to theology, we can tend to have our very short, very compact answers, but theology is often very complex. And I think that we need to try harder to avoid easy answers and actually be willing to take time to wrestle through things. And so um, you've just witnessed uh, me wrestling through things, my friend Evan wrestling through things, Gary helping us wrestle through things and sharing what he's wrestled through. Um, and, And I think that we're the better for it. So Thank you so much for listening to this show and for listening to the Good Lion Podcast. If you like our show, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps so much. And, you know, the more reviews we get, the more people will find out about our show. So if you want to help the show, please just go to Apple Podcasts and leave a quick review. And please continue to pray for Professor Gary Brashears. Pray that God would heal him. Pray for comfort and protection for his family during this hard time. And just pray that God would continue to give Gary direction and wisdom and hope during this time. I was reading his blog and Gary was just talking about how the word that he received from the Lord for this season was, this is not the end. Keep on with what you're doing. And man, what a what an encouragement to see somebody facing cancer and yet continuing to serve the Lord and to serve others and to serve their family in such an inspiring way. We were so thankful for Gary and we just continue to pray for him and we just ask that you would pray for him too. So from me and Brian, from our hearts, uh, thank you for listening to our show and uh, we'll see you on the next one.